was around 5 p.m. on March 5, 1940. Nine-year-old Dorothy Lee Gordon and her friend Christine Pollard were walking home from L.A.'s Cornerstone Baptist Church, where they'd been rehearsing for the upcoming Easter play. It was a perfectly normal L.A. evening in the friendly, predominantly black neighborhood of Central Alameda, with school children and adults all around. Then, a man in a gray sedan pulled up alongside Dorothy and Christine at the intersection of 17th Street and Hooper Avenue. He stood out. He was middle-aged, bareheaded, and white. Get in the car, Dorothy, he commanded. I'm going your way. Dorothy did as she was told. My wife had told her to never go with any strange man and if accosted to call for help, her father Willie later told the LA Times. But Dorothy didn't seem scared and the man knew her name. In the calmest, most insidious way, Dorothy had been kidnapped. I'm Hadley Mears. And this is Underbelly LA. Although Los Angeles was already a giant city of over one and a half million people, in many ways, 1940s L.A. was like a typical apple pie American mid-century town. Its sprawling geography and the relatively low-profile architecture of many residential neighborhoods, filled with bungalows, cottages, and small brick-front commercial businesses, made parts of Los Angeles feel like safe, child-friendly villages, Doors were rarely locked and children ran free, their parents sure their neighbors had the kids' best interest at heart. Of course, like any community, Los Angeles had seen children victimized before Dorothy's disappearance. There were the horrific Winneville chicken coop murders, perpetrated by a loudmouthed degenerate named Gordon Northcutt against young boys. And then there was the 1926 kidnapping, murder, and dismemberment of 12-year-old Marion Parker by the handsome young sociopath William Edward Hickman. Marion's murder had captivated and terrified not just Los Angeles, but the nation. But these are other stories for another time. Dorothy Lee Gordon's family had come to Los Angeles not for these shadowy tales, but for the sunshine. Dorothy was born on July 2, 1930, in the southern state of Arkansas. Her family had eventually moved to Los Angeles and settled in a small bungalow at 1428 East 22nd Street. Her father, Willie, found work with the WPA, and they joined a small but vibrant community of around 63,000 black Angelinos, who, due to restrictive covenants and discrimination, were confined primarily to the neighborhood surrounding Central Avenue to the south and east of downtown Los Angeles. This injustice meant that black Angelinos were unable to live in Beverly Hills, Hawthorne, Santa Monica, Glendale, Bel Air, etc., etc. There were always exceptions, of course, mostly for live-in domestic workers. 
Black Angelinos made the best of a bad situation in Los Angeles. Life centered around Central Avenue, a legendary downtown of jazz and blues clubs, hotels and businesses, theaters and shops. The community boasted two major newspapers, the California Eagle and the Los Angeles Sentinel. Churches and charitable clubs played an important part in many residents' lives and attempted to offer stability, safety, and comfort to a community often abused or outright ignored by local government authorities. Faced with the terrifying prospect of their very own Marion Parker, with whom Dorothy's case was immediately compared to, L.A.'s black community sprang into action. No doubt unwilling to count solely on the work of the LAPD, local groups began to band together to aid in the search for Dorothy and advocate on her behalf. At a contentious city council meeting, a week after Dorothy was kidnapped, a fight almost broke out when council members refused to offer a reward for information about Dorothy's whereabouts. Leaders of the black community then appealed directly to Governor Colbert Olson of California, but also took matters into their own hands. Together with local women's clubs, the Reverend D.C. Austin of the Cornerstone Baptist Church formed the East Side Citizens Committee to help find Dorothy. Collecting pennies, nickels, and dimes, they were able to put together a reward of over $200 for information. The NAACP and the Los Angeles Sentinel also offered rewards, as did local business owners, bringing the total reward to around $3,000. But neither Dorothy, last seen in her brightly colored dress and blue coat, nor her white kidnapper were anywhere to be found. On March 21st, as one week turned into two, the Reverend Austin issued a plea. A human life is at stake. We are asking for human assistance, not gossip, not personal opinions, but action. An innocent child has disappeared. A mother's heart is broken. Her words echo through my mind. Is my baby alive? If so, is she hungry or cold? Is she in pain, crying for her mother? We must keep fighting for Dorothy's return, dead or alive. We must show the world that our children must be protected. Our women must be shielded. Our American citizenship must be recognized. That same day, Governor Olson offered a $1,000 reward on behalf of the state. The LAPD searched diligently for Dorothy and her captor, conducting an exhaustive, costly manhunt, the likes of which had seldom been seen since the kidnapping and murder of Marion Parker. Scores of officers, quote, searched gypsy camps and hobo jungles, unquote. They also searched migrant camps in the San Joaquin Valley. Garages were searched for the suspect's car. On March 23rd, the L.A. Times reported, on the theory that Dorothy may have been killed and her body thrown in some isolated field, detectives today will make an extended flight in the Goodyear blimp over the country's more remote sections. They express the belief that if the body were in such a location, it could be more readily seen by use of binoculars from the airship than by search parties on the ground. As the weeks dragged on with no sign of Dorothy, even the white media, which usually ignored L.A.'s black community, breathlessly covered the case. In an age before Amber Alerts, radio stations broadcast descriptions of Dorothy and her captor. A drawing by an L.A. Examiner artist of the kidnapper and his victim 
were distributed in newspapers and circulars all over the Southwest and beyond. Police all over the West also searched for the kidnapper's car, but no matching vehicle was discovered. Dorothy's mysterious white abductor became the new boogeyman of Southern California. Residents called in tips from as far away as San Diego, and countless men were brought in for questioning. On March 31st, the LA Times reported that a cook named Frank Morlin had almost been assaulted by an angry mob in downtown Los Angeles. Morland was arrested after he assertedly seized a 10-year-old girl at 761 Wall Street, when she refused his offer to go to a movie with him, the paper reported. The child jerked out of his grasp and ran and ran. Pedestrians chased Moreland to 6th and San Pedro streets, where he was captured and held until police arrived in time to save him from threats of the crowd to, quote, beat him up, unquote. You haven't got anything on me on the Gordon Girl case, he cried to police. I've got an alibi. I wasn't here. When asked why he had immediately brought up Dorothy's disappearance, he cried, I just said that because I've been reading about the case. Moreland was booked on suspicion of kidnapping, but eventually released. One of the LAPD's most promising and creepy suspects was the British-born Percy Hicks, a laborer accused of attempting to lure three East L.A. schoolgirls into his car on the same day Dorothy had disappeared. Dorothy's friend, Christine Pollard, upon being shown Hicks in a lineup, said that he looked like the man who had taken her friend. The LAPD's suspicion rose when they found a shack behind a junkyard at 624 Banning Street. Hicks claimed to occasionally come here to take a sleep. In the shack were a bloodstained newspaper, a paring knife, and a large amount of black hair. There was also a child's sandal. In spite of how incriminating all this might sound, it seems the evidence was not sufficient to hold Hicks, and he was released. As March rolled into April, the LAPD was getting desperate. Working on a tip, they searched miles of underground storm drains around Slauson and McKinley Avenues in an attempt to find Dorothy's body or to uncover a clue. The first week of April, a man named Louis A. Gleason found two gunny sacks full of bones in the Los Angeles River in Glendale. The bags were turned over to Dr. Frank Webb, the county autopsy surgeon, on the hope that they would offer up a clue as to what happened to Dorothy. But the bones turned out to be those of a fish, which some local fishermen had tossed into the river. But nature was soon to give up Dorothy in a horrifying and heartbreaking way. On Friday, April 19th, the Los Angeles Times reported, Hidden by grass and wildflowers, 
the body of little Dorothy Gordon, nine-year-old schoolgirl missing for more than a month, was found. The discovery, which ended a search in which authorities and volunteer workers had combed the Southland, was made by Frank Roman, Paramount Property Department worker, and two assistants in county territory near Del Rey. Roman and his assistants had been collecting moss and grass for the set of the Cecil B. DeMille movie Northwest Mounted Police. Dorothy's body was clad in her blue wool coat and brightly colored dress, which had been slashed repeatedly with a sharp object. The little girl had been buried in a two-foot grave in a semi-seated position. Recent rains had exposed the upper body. Upon preliminary examination, the county's autopsy surgeon was unable to determine whether Dorothy had been, quote, mistreated, unquote, but was confident she had been murdered. An official cause of death was never determined, but it was later reported that she had most probably been raped. The discovery of Dorothy left Angelinos horrified and the community banded together across color lines. In an editorial entitled, This Killer Must Be Caught, one reporter for the LA Times wrote, All the circumstances surrounding the death of little Dorothy Lee Gordon point to a crime of the most revolting type. The discovery of the Negro schoolgirl's battered body, half buried in the sand dunes of Playa del Rey six weeks after she disappeared in the company of a white stranger, is a challenge to the best brains of the state, county, and city authorities, and to the Federal Bureau of Investigation as well, since there is no doubt that the victim was kidnapped. Let it not be said that there is any less vigor and determination in back of the pursuit of the Gordon girl's fiendish slayer than there would have been had the little victim been white. Another editorial sounded an alarm to parents. No child is safe as long as the slayer of Dorothy Gordon is alive. There is every reason to believe that a degenerate of the kind who killed the little child will return to this county sooner or later to pick up some other innocent and unsuspecting victim. Every parent should warn his child to have nothing at all to do with any stranger. Tell the children to report any case of molestation to adults immediately. In addition, local residents should keep a sharp lookout for any strangers who are seen near schools or playgrounds and who are loitering there. As was often the protocol in cases with no leads, the usual suspects, including known morals offenders, were rounded up by the LAPD to be paraded in front of little Christine and other witnesses. According to the Los Angeles Times, Police prepared for a show-up to be held in Central Jail at 8 p.m. today when numerous suspects will be paraded before witnesses in the community where the Gordon girl lived and who saw her get into an automobile with a strange white man last March 5th. Other men, who will be brought in by a police detail of more than 100 men working on the case, also will be placed in the show-up. These show-ups seem to have been unproductive. As the days passed, the police seemed to get more and more desperate, arresting, questioning, and then releasing many a creepy man. One article detailed the many suspects. Booked here on suspicion of attempted snatching was florist David Klein of San Diego, accused of trying to molest a little Negro girl in the vicinity of the district from which Dorothy was lured into her car. Held in San Diego was Chester A. Hall, alleged to have been the white man who made advances to two little Negro lasses in La Jolla Sunday. 
and Long Beach coppers hauled George C. Roger, a 44-year-old furniture repairman, into the Hoosgau on suspicion of moral offense. Rogers, officials said, fitted the description of the slayer of the Gordon girl, but Klein was named the number one suspect in the case, which has baffled police ever since it was discovered Dorothy was enticed into the old sedan of a white man. It was charged by local police that Klein ordered Odessa Prati, 14-year-old Negro girl, to get into his car. She, well aware of what happened to Dorothy, sidetracked him and jotted down the license number of his machine, which resulted in his arrest. After failing to pick up Odessa, Klein is said to have given Stella Haskins, a 40-year-old Negro, a ride. She was questioned and admitted the incident. For all this sound and fury, the case remained unsolved. In 1941, Christine Pollard and another witness named Faye McLean were brought into yet another lineup at City Jail. This time they were there to view a 32-year-old mattress maker named James McPherson, who had recently kidnapped a six-year-old blonde girl named Bonnie Alred. He had lured her to the car with the promise of ice cream. Three hours later, a hysterical and sobbing Bonnie had managed to escape and police had found McPherson and Watts in a drunken stupor in his car. That's him, Christine told officers, pointing to McPherson. Detectives then made McPherson recite the words the killer had spoken on March 5, 1940. Get in the car, Dorothy, he commanded. I'm going your way. Christine again confirmed that he was the kidnapper, the boogeyman of Central Alameda. Faye McLean concurred. But strangely, although police said McPherson was to be charged with murder, the case went nowhere and no charges were ever filed. And so the years went on. So ingrained in L.A.'s collective memory was the story of Dorothy Gordon that in 1949 a mentally disturbed man named Robert Stuart Cox confessed to killing Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. He also confessed to killing a small Negro girl many years before. He was booked on suspicion for the murder of Dorothy, but was soon released. Dorothy's brutal murder tore her family apart. According to a 1951 article in the Los Angeles Sentinel, her parents divorced, her mother fell quite ill, and her father remarried and moved away. Later reporting was more blunt. Dorothy's mother had lost her mind and soon died a broken woman. The same article offered a fresh reward for leads in the case, referring to it as one of the tragic mysteries in local history. Those who remembered knew that time was not on their side. It has been more than 11 years since all that remained of the little East Side girl was found in a Delray area field. More than 11 years, and the man who raped and killed her hasn't been apprehended. Some two dozen suspects have been questioned and re-questioned and released in connection with the Gordon slang. As the dust of time grows heavier and heavier in the case, and people who are associated with it die out, retire, or move elsewhere, 
the chances of the killer ever being brought to justice grow slimmer and slimmer. With no resolution, Dorothy's fate became a murky cautionary tale in L.A.'s African-American community. Will your child be an Easter week victim, one headline read in 1957? Occasionally, Stanley Robertson of the Los Angeles Sentinel would write about Dorothy's case in his column, Do You Remember? But by the late 80s, these mentions had ceased, and it seemed Dorothy's story had been largely forgotten. As of the reporting of this podcast, neither the LAPD nor the L.A. County Sheriff's Office was able to locate Dorothy Lee Gordon's case file. I searched and searched for her picture, but could only find the police sketch distributed on circulars throughout the Southwest. The quality of the copy was so poor, none of her features were identifiable. The sketch of her kidnapper and killer? It was as clear as day and can be found on our website. Maybe you will recognize him. After all, time has a way of shining light on the truth, as horrifying as it may sometimes be. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA at Underbelly LA. We're also on Facebook. Just search Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Hadley Mears. This episode is based on an article I wrote for LA Magazine. Check it out. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Underbelly LA. Join us next week when we uncover the horror of the Cecil Hotel. A Table Cakes production.